Thank you for the opportunity to uh, be here with you this morning. Did you notice in that first um, reading, I hadn't noticed before until, because we sang the song at the start of the service about coming running to, to God, how the nations are going to be running to him as well. Well, I thought that was interesting, imagining nations running to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, do you ever feel tired, weary, worn out? Rob, you've heard this sermon. He was here at eight. Um, have you ever felt like that? Was it, when was the last time you felt that way? <laughs> this morning? Last week? I was hoping maybe we'd start a little bit further back. Last week? This morning? Do you feel that right now? I certainly feel that uh, as well uh, right now. And our Old Testament reading in Isaiah 55, it put its finger on some of our longings, didn't it? It said it started off by saying, if you're thirsty, come to me. Come to the waters, rather. If you have no money, come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. In other words, come, be satisfied. It's, it goes on to say, don't spend your money on what is not bread. Don't spend your labour on what does not satisfy. You see, the Bible here and many other places, it's really accurately describing our human condition. We thirst. We hunger. We yearn for something more. We have a longing for love a longing for intimacy that truly satisfies, that really goes, ah. Well, this morning, I want to look at a Bible passage that is, I'm sure, really, really familiar to you all. Uh, and it's one, I've chosen it because Paul said you could preach on anything you like, so that's always very dangerous. Um, uh, but it's one that speaks to our human hearts. And I suppose I chose it partly for myself, because I'm feeling tired and weary, and sometimes I chat to Paul, he's feeling tired and weary, and uh, where do we find that strength? Where do we find that energy? Where do we find that um, refreshment, to put it that way? So I want to dip into Matthew chapter 14, which tells the story of the Jesus' miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000. That's a lot of people. But wait, there's more than 5,000, aren't there? We're told in the passage, it's 5,000 men. Did you notice that in verse 21? Not counting the women and children. So who knows how many was actually there? 8,000? 9,000, 10,000, 15,000, depending on how many kids have come out to that remote place. All we know is it's the feeding of the 5,000 plus. You know, I want you to get the pens out and put in the heading in your Bibles, the feeding of the 5,000 plus. Now, Google reliably told me before I came up here that the population of the Goulburn Mulwary region, as forecast for 2023, anyone want to have a stab at it? Not up to 40,000, yes, yet. 33,000, you're in the right direction. 
33,153. So I don't know, I mean, how accurate that is. Maybe it is around 40,000. But that's, I mean, that's the population of all the folk around here, okay? Here we have a feeding of 5,000 plus, that may be 10,000 or more. And so we have a quarter, maybe a third of the population, up to a half of the population of this district at this miracle. That's a huge amount of people turning out, not only to listen to Jesus. I mean, it's not like they've just rocked up. They've actually walked out and, and tracked out to a remote spot. So they've actually, that's a lot of people that have made that journey. And not only is it a lot of people that have tracked out there to hear him, but also that's a lot of people to feed. Think about that if you're on the morning tea roster. But wait, there's more. If you flip over the page in your Bible and go into Matthew 15, you will find the story of the feeding of the 4,000. Again, it's 4,000 men, but wait, there's more. There's, me, there's women and children there as well, so it's 4,000 plus. Now, I'm happy to chat to anyone about this afterwards. I'm absolutely 100% sure that Matthew is not that stupid that he's telling the same story twice within one side of the piece of papyri to the other. Okay? There are significant differences. And we know this from elsewhere that Jesus often repeats miracles. And sometimes he will repeat things that are particularly pertinent and significant. This, there's something very profound going on in these miracles. The feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, turning heaps of water into wine. There are all these kind of similar miracles. But wait, there's more. I don't have any free sets of state knives, sorry about that. Um, do you know that the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. It is, of all the miracles, it's the only one that appears four times. Now, of course, I'm excluding the miracle of Jesus' death and resurrection. But of all the miracles, it's the only one. Something significant is going on. Well, in a nutshell, this is where we're heading this morning. This is what I, why I think this miracle is so important. It tells us at least three truths. Every sermon's got to have three points, apparently. That's what I got told. That's what Ross told me ages ago, Ross Hathaway. Um, first one is the truth of our human condition. So this miracle will tell us something about the truth of our human condition. It also will tell us about the truth of God's compassion. And finally, it also tells us about the truth of Jesus' ability to satisfy our hunger. So it's going to tell us about our human condition. It's going to tell us about God's compassion and also Jesus' ability to satisfy so let's think about the first bit, about our human condition. What does it mean to be human? What's it like? Well, think about this carefully. I'm, I'm, this is stating the bleeding obvious. Your, my daily hunger 
tells you something about yourself. Your hunger that you feel all the time tells you something about yourself. What does it tell you? Well, I mean, obviously it tells you they need to eat some food in order to survive. I mean, duh. But it tells you more than that. It tells you that you need to be dependent on something that is outside of yourself. In other words, you're not like God. You're not a self-sustaining entity. You are dependent on something external to you. And if you don't have that, you wither and perish. It tells you that you are frail and fragile. Tells you that you have limitations. That you are finite. That you are mortal. Now this is part of our human nature, our human condition, that you are a creature. You are not God. I know we're all thinking of some people who we've met who think they are. But we're not God. We hunger. We thirst. Now that is something important to hang on to. Now, let's be honest. I mean, looking at the side profile here, I don't really know what it is to really hunger and thirst, do I? I have never really experienced um, starvation. Now, I have actually have some friends who have experienced that. Uh, some of our refugee friends. I'm thinking particularly of my, some of my South Sudanese uh, brothers and sisters who tracked you know, thousands of kilometres to escape violence, who will tell you stories of people who died of starvation along the way. I've never known that. However, I mean, the, 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 probably the closest that most of us have got is doing the 40-hour famine. That's probably when I felt the hungriest. But even though hopefully most of us have never known that level of deprivation and that starvation, we all know what it is to hunger, don't we? I mean, we've all been there, stuffed with our guts full on Christmas lunchtime and possibly couldn't eat another thing. And then six or seven hours later, you're saying, oh, what's for dinner? It tells us something about who we are. We all know what it is to hunger. We all know what it is when our guts begin to churn. Our guts begin to grumble and bubble away saying, feed me. I need something. We all know what it is to hunger, to thirst, to gasp for air. We know that we can't survive without food. We can't survive without water. We can't survive without oxygen. We are dependent beings. And this, my friends, is right at the heart of what is special about this miracle. You see, we are created creatures, created to be dependent upon God not only for our physical survival, but also for our spiritual survival. And this is what the miracle's about. It's not just about Jesus turning up and, and delaying hunger for a few thousand people for a few hours. I mean, and you'll see why it's not that in a, in a moment. 
what Jesus is doing is grasping an opportunity to point to a much greater, more significant and powerful reality. Just like we cannot do without food, water and oxygen, we cannot survive, literally, without God. In fact, if you think about a definition of hell, it is that place where you cannot survive without God because God's presence has been removed. You cannot survive without God. So that's the truth of our human condition, that we are reliant upon God. And more than that, there's actually a longing, there is a hunger in us that God has actually placed there that can only be met and satisfied by God. I used to be, uh, before I went into the ministry, I used to be a high school maths teacher. So I got a degree in pure maths. And one of the subjects I studied was the history and philosophy of mathematics. And there's this really groovy French guy called René Descartes. Anyone heard of him? Descartes? Okay. You're a little bit more awake than the eight o'clockers. Don't tell them now, that's fine. They're actually really lovely this morning. I enjoyed meeting them. But uh, René Descartes, you remember your Cartesian maths? It's named after him, Cartesian maths. Um, He was a Christian philosopher, and one of the inventions that they had discovered in his time, a few hundred years ago, was what a vacuum was. You know, that there can be a space where there is no molecules, a vacuum. And he coined this phrase, he said, we have all been created with a God-shaped vacuum in our hearts. We have a God space in our heart. I know when my kids were little and they were watching, you know, trying to find things to encourage them in, in thinking about God, there was that series called The Donut Man. Anyone, anyone remember that? American stuff? Anyhow. It was, you know, like gospel kind of stuff to encourage for kids to ministry. But the whole thing was there's a hole in a donut. There's a God-shaped space in our hearts that only God can fill. And we have a yearning, a hunger that only God can satisfy. And here's the problem. We all go through our lives trying to fill that space that's meant for God with everything else that we can think of. And our lives go off track. When we try and do that, and we all do it, I mean, I do it, we all do it. Uh, It's part of what it is to be human. When we do that, we're living our lives for ourselves or for that bit in our heart and not for God. We put ourselves on that, that throne, if you like, in place of God. And so we let our hungers, our yearnings, which are God created, and we substitute false things into that, into that space. We might be pursuing money. We might be really wanting to have the status from our, a career or something like that. And that's what we're living for. I mean, of course, you, you need money. Actually, in that song, Paul, when we're doing actions with, uh, was it spend, was it? Spend each day. I don't, know, I don't know loose change like this anymore. It should be tap and go. <laughs> spend each day. That's what, you know. I think you need to change the actions for that, mate. <laughs> but we need our money. We 
But if that is what you're pursuing, if that's what you're living for, then it's taken that space and it'll distort your life. You can put your achievements there. Sometimes people live for their families and it, it looks like a really healthy thing to do, but all of a sudden that becomes what's more important than God. You can put any kind of addiction in there, your sexuality, just your need to be liked by other people. If that's what's most important at the heart, it will twist and take you away from God. There's all different ways. As many as there are people, we have different ways of filling that hole within us. It is a God space. God needs to be at the centre. Now, come back to Matthew chapter 14 for this miracle. Did you notice in, chapter four, in uh, verse 15, the disciples actually come to Jesus and they come to Jesus with a solution. Here they all are, thousands upon thousands of people out in a remote place and they're thinking, oh, we're pretty clever, we've got a solution here. This is a remote place, they say to Jesus. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves food. Here is a problem, here is a solution. Send the crowds away. Now, it's really important to see that Jesus didn't have to do this miracle. Jesus didn't have to do this miracle. He could have just simply encouraged the crowds to go back home. Said, you all know where you came from, that's where you go, back over the hill, start walking. But if he'd done that, which is what the disciples were encouraging him to do, he would have lost a massive opportunity, wouldn't he? He would have lost the opportunity in a very, very powerful way to point people to something beyond their physical hunger. Because this miracle, as I said, is not about just Jesus satiating their hunger for a few hours and let's come back again and do it again tomorrow. It's not about that. See, Jesus wants ordinary people like you and me to know that our needs, our hungers, can only be satisfied and met by God. And further for the disciples, Jesus wants the disciples to know that their ministry can only function if it's fully dependent upon God. So the truth, this first truth, is that our human condition is such that we need God. And immediately, as soon as you say that, it means that the first step of faith is one of humility, isn't it? Because you have to say as a person, as a human being, I need help. I need God. And I know a lot of people that I've met in life who do not find that easy. I don't find that easy. Who finds that easy? Because we are brought up to be self-sufficient, reliable, independent. Now, the second truth here... Oh, well, actually, before we jump into the second truth, did you notice the context for this miracle? Right at the start in verse 13, it reads, When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by a boat privately to a solitary place. What had happened? Well, if you just read the verses before, which we didn't, you will learn there that this miracle happens immediately after John the Baptist is beheaded and murdered. 
He's been executed. He's been martyred. It was a dark day in history when that happened. He was a prophet out in the desert, pointing the way. There's one coming after me. Prepare the way for the Lord. Jesus was baptised by him. He's actually related to him as well. Jesus is deeply affected. I mean, their mums were babies in the womb together. They've known each other. Jesus has been impacted by that sadness, that death. And he's withdrawn to a solitary place. Even Jesus, the Son of God, who's come down from heaven to earth as a human being, fully human, as we say, needs time to be alone. He needs to be able to grieve. He needs to be able to reflect. And not only reflect on what's just happened to John, because he knows that what's happening to John is also an indicator for what is going to happen to him. He's withdrawn to reflect on all this, to to pray, to talk to his heavenly father in the midst of his grief. And yet he comes out of that and there's the massive crowd. He tries to land the boat and the crowds continue to pursue him mercilessly. It would have been so easy just to do what the disciples said, just tell them to go home. Wouldn't it? But instead, what you have here is an absolutely remarkable response. And so the next truth is is God's profound, immense compassion. Did you see that in the passage? It is the truth of God's compassion. Because, you know, if I had been there, I would have been saying, just send them all home. We haven't got the food for this. That's what you and I would have done. That's what the disciples wanted to do. But no... Jesus is here for a reason, to reveal who he is and what he can do for each one of us. And so you see in Matthew 14, verse 14, Jesus, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Now, I want to stay with the word compassion. Paul used to work for compassion. Uh, I learnt at the last service, I think, to collectively here, St Nick's is sponsoring 62, would you say? 60 compassion kids. That's fantastic. That's awesome. Now, compassion happens to be my favourite Greek in the New Testament word. And here's why. I'm gonna, I don't normally do this. I mean... I'm going to tell you the Greek word for compassion and I want you to see if you can work out which part of your body it might be located from, all right? The Greek word for compassion is splagnitsomai. Splagnitsomai. Anyone done a bit of anatomy? Not the spleen close, but it's not far off the spleen. It's in your splankton, which is your, your big guts. It's in your bowels. So compassion is the word based on the Greek word for your bowel. So when Jesus has compassion, it means literally his bowels are churning for people. 
That's the deepest gut-wrenching. We talk about it, gut-wrenching. You feel it in your guts. Not just up here, in your guts. To have compassion means that your guts are churning. Jesus' guts are churning for the crowd. Jesus' guts are churning for you and for me. Now, in the beginning of creation, when God created everything and it was very good, we know that humanity's sin, something went profoundly wrong. And that hunger, that yearning, that longing that we have, that should have been for God, our creator, it's become twisted. And instead, we fill that space with every selfish and sinful desire. That's who we are. And yet when Jesus looks on us, in that messy, broken kind of state, his guts are churning for us. He knows what we've been made for. He knows that we've been created in the image of God. He loves us. It's so powerful. And, so, and here's actually the... the uh, Paul made this joke, so I'm only copying your rector. Here's the guts of the sermon. Right? Sorry. What? <laughs> Thanks, Paul. No, it was a good dad joke. I love that. Good dad jokes. Um, whilst the people's hunger, their guts are churning from their hunger, Jesus is looking with compassion and his guts are churning for us. See the juxtaposition? Now, let me try and join all the dots and bring together with the third point that only Jesus satisfies our hunger we take our food for granted don't we it's pretty easy to chuck down the 7-eleven Coles, Woolies, wherever you do your shopping and we can just go down there and we get our food we don't live in we live in a world where it's all around us by and large but back in the first century, hunger was actually common. Life was a struggle to make ends meet, to, to make sure you had enough to eat. Because when your crop failed, that meant you had a season of hunger, of scrounging around, trying to find whatever you could. And you're starting to eat other things that you normally wouldn't eat. And so people in Jesus' day really knew this truth a lot better than we do. Their dependence upon God for their survival. And so you find that that basic need is embedded in the most famous prayer ever, the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Seems a funny thing for us to pray at this time in our lives. When we just, daily bread, oh, that's a pretty easy prayer to answer. I just pop down to Woolies. Tap and go. Why did Jesus put that in the most well-known prayer when his disciples have asked, teach us to pray, why is that there in the middle? Because we are dependent upon God. And even though we live in a modern world where we like to think that we're not, we actually are. Now, furthermore, the people whom Jesus is talking to, the first century Hebrews, 
people of Israel, they know their Old Testament history probably a lot better than we do. Well, maybe, I'm sure all of you people know it well. Because there was part of their DNA. And so everyone that's there being fed out in the remote area, they could tell you the story from Exodus about how God, through Moses, provided manna, bread from heaven, for 40 days, uh, 40 years, every day, in the wilderness. They understand that. Some of them are wondering, gee, Jesus, is, Jesus just provided this amazing miracle. Is he going to do it for the next 40 years? Is that what it's about? Well, as I said, this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is the only one that's in all four Gospels. And so I'm actually going to flip over now to John's Gospel because John does something else when he records this miracle he then records the conversation the next day that Jesus had, which explains why Jesus does the miracle. Let me read it. It's a bit of a long reading. Let me read it to you. John, thank you. John chapter, John chapter 6. And I'm going to start reading from verse 26. If you've got your Bible on your phone, you can follow along. I'll give you... It only takes about three seconds. Depends how fast your connection is here. All right. John chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus answered them, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, which is Jesus' way of talking about himself, will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe the one he has sent. And so they asked him, and this is quite uh, the audacity of this question after he's just done a miracle feeding the 5,000 the day before, right? What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. I mean, so in comparison to Moses, Jesus is not that good because he did it for 40 years. This is only one day. You've got to lift your game. Can you hear him saying that? Well, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus, it's very similar uh, flow to the woman at the well, which is about thirst, but that's another sermon. I'll stay here. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and you still do not believe. 
All those the Father has given me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. Now at this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say he's come down from heaven? Jesus said, stop grumbling amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up on the last day. It's about the third or fourth time he said that now. There's a promise in there, isn't there, about what's important in life. And then Jesus quotes the prophets. It is written in the prophets, because that's what's happening right at the time he's talking. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who's heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. See, this is how he's going to be greater than Moses. Because it's not just about the food here and now. It's about all eternity. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. It's a long reading, I know, but I wanted to read it all because, friends, only Jesus can truly satisfy you i'm not just talking about your hungers when you get hungry and you've got to stop at maccas or whatever i'm talking about the deepest most innermost needs for your human being for your survival but also for eternity one of my i'm going off script here paul one of my favorite verses is psalm 14 verse 1 that god has put eternity in your hearts you've been created for eternity this is the god space that only jesus can satisfy he truly satisfies your deepest hungers now do you believe that oh yes hallelujah oh yes good next question does everyone you know who lives around you and your families know that you believe that? Or is it the best kept secret that you've ever kept in your life? See, 
the feeding of the 5,000 is just more than a miracle about having you know, some fish and loaves. And, and I mean, it's an amazing miracle. But it's pointing us very clearly to our dependence upon God for all eternity. We cannot exist and survive without God. It's telling us about the truth of our human condition, that we all have a hunger and yearning for God. It's telling us the truth about God's compassion. Even in the midst of Jesus' grief, he's there with his guts churning for us. And it's also telling us the truth about how Jesus is God's satisfaction. He is the one who satisfies our hunger because he is the living bread from heaven. We need to feed on him. Now, we do that when we have communion. That's a physical, tangible reminder. That's why Jesus did that on the night before he died, to point us in that same direction. Because it's all about what happens at his death on the cross, isn't it? Now, I want to finish just by highlighting a different connection in the passage. And it's the connection between us being fully satisfied in God and also us finding our rest, our renewal. Because at the start of the service I said, how many of you are feeling tired and weary? And you all said, yeah, I'm feeling like that right now. This, this is the connection. There is a connection here be between having our desires and our hunger satisfied and actually finding our rest in God. Um, we've got a few folks here who are from F5. Last, last Sunday, I was up in Goulburn and we closed down F5 and thank you to the, the folk here at St Nick's who came along and, and provided a lovely meal um, for that congregation as we closed them down. But one of the the whole key idea when F5 was started was that it was built around the idea of refreshment, renewal, which is a really... because it immediately taps into our human need and longing that we need that. To be able to find our reconnection to God. Now, this story here of the feeding of 5,000, I don't know if you noticed it, but it's bookended by the same idea. Right there in verse 13... Jesus, before he does a miracle, he withdraws to a lonely, solitary place to pray in response to his grief to John the Baptist being beheaded. And then right at the end of the passage, after he's done the whole miracle and he's dismissed the disciples first and then the crowd, what does Jesus do? He immediately goes up to a lonely place to pray. So it's there at the start and at the end of this passage. Jesus, who was the second Adam, the perfect sinless one, is completely dependent upon the Father. Jesus himself finds his rest and restoration, his own refreshment from nurturing the prayerful relationship with God, from, by taking time out from the busyness of, it, of his ministry even, just to be with God, to pray, to listen. And I'm immediately thinking, if Jesus needs to do that, how much more do we all need to do that? Because Jesus, he's not down here on this planet as Superman. He's down here as one of us, a fragmented human being. Jesus is exercising his dependence, his reliance upon his heavenly Father. And so, 
How is it that Jesus was able to walk into that crowd after feeling completely distraught by John the Baptist being beheaded? Because he's being restored and renewed by his heavenly father, his compassion is being enabled by the spirit living and working and dwelling within him as he's being renewed. He's able to do that at the, in the midst of his grief, in the midst of the crowd clamouring around for him, baying for attention. But he's also, as we know, still has that same posture, that same attitude as he dies on the cross for us, as he bears the weight of our sin. Even in the midst when he is separated from the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he bears the weight of our sin, his compassion is churning for us. He pours himself out completely for us so that we might be able to have our deepest thirsts and hungers met now and forever. Abundant life. So listen to Jesus' words as I finish. Because at the end, it's all about him and what he promises and what he can do for each and every one of us. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will raise you up on the last day. Come to me, all you who are parched and thirsty, for... I am the living water. Come to me, all who are hungry, for I am the bread from heaven. I am the bread of life, says Jesus. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Let's pray. Lord God, I am aware that there may be people here who have never really taken that step of swallowing their own pride and taking that step of humility to say, I need help, I need to be dependent upon you. So Lord, help us to put our trust in you. Help us to take that step of faith, to believe, as uh, we've heard and Lord, we pray that you would use our bodily thirst and hungers to remind us that we so need you. I mean, let's start today, Lord. Later on today, as we are hungry, may that hunger not only think, oh, what's for lunch? But may it remind us, hey, oh, I have been created to be dependent upon you. And Lord, as we pray, give us this day our daily bread we pray that you would remind us of our dependence upon you. And so, Jesus, we pray, reveal yourself to us this morning and every day as living bread, for our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. Amen.